welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. All right, everybody, welcome back to another Knock On Podcast, and uh, this is going to be an awesome podcast. I've got uh, Clint Freeman is going to be with us. Clint is the first ever guy to shoot a 1400, an amazing archer, awesome dude. He's from Australia, um, former 90-meter world record holder. I don't know. He's probably held tons of other world records. I forget about that stuff, but this is just a great dude, and uh, we're going to talk Aeroflight. I know you guys out there are going to enjoy this. Again, some of the knock-on podcasts might be geared a little bit towards the hunter. Some might be geared towards the 3D archer, but also I can guarantee you there's going to be some that are geared towards all my target archer buddies out there because really that's probably where I had my most fun because in my opinion that's where I really learned how well I was shooting because the paper never lies, the lines are never pulled, it's in or it's out. So uh, let me get Clint on the phone and we're going to talk Aeroflight. Hold on. Hey John. Hey buddy, how's it How's it going? Yeah, not too bad, you know, just uh, hopped back into the uh, shooting scene last weekend, so that was first time in about three years, three and a half years. Yeah, well, hey, I would know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so was that the Australian Nationals then? Yeah, it's the Australian Open, so we just had um, a 72-hour ranking round and match play, yeah, so. Yeah, I loved that tournament. Um that that was one of the best weeks of archery that I've had because you guys have a really cool system down there. You know, we shot we shot an Olympic ranking round. Then did we shoot the head to heads the next day or did we go into field the next day? Uh, I think yeah, we went went into the field and then we had the uh, had the head to heads uh, towards the end of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It, yeah, it was cool. We shot a full a full feet around. Um, it was almost like five tournaments, wasn't it? We shot a full 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 feet around. Then we shot a full unmarked field. Then we shot a full marked field. Then we yeah. shot um, individual head-to-heads and also some team. I think you did some team head-to-heads. And then in the middle of all that, there was like a clout sheet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, they've, <laughs> I've, sort of, I've sort of broken it up a bit now. They've, they have what um, what we call the Australian Open, which is what we had last weekend, which is basically just a – a three-day event, so you have your your um, uh, practice day, uh, ranking round, and then the head-to-heads on the final day. So and then we have our uh, actual national championship separate to that. That's where we have like a, a two-day of target and then a two-day of field plus the clout. Yeah, yeah, that was such a fun tournament. I remember um, actually. What's awesome, everybody, is like I had mentioned earlier, uh, Clint. Is the first ever guy to ever shoot a 1400 you got the first 1400 pin dude i got to see it i think yeah you I got did to, i did i got to see that sucker um i remember when i was down there when i came to that there's actually a couple of good things to learn from that tournament you know um i'm a firm believer in practice and how you play and i remember see 
right now it's so it's like peak of winter here you know so if for all of you out there you know when i prepare for a major event typically i set at least three weeks of hardcore dedication to preparing for a major tournament especially when you're shooting against guys like pat uh well pat coglin was there clint you were there uh clifton clifton was there I mean, yeah. we we had a we had a heck of a number one target, didn't we? I mean, we were. Oh, yeah. It was yeah, guys were shooting lights out all over the place. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, here I was. I actually have pictures of this. Um, you know, we had like three feet of snow on the ground in Wisconsin, and I'm like training for your guys' nationals, and obviously, I don't want to go down there and look like an idiot. So, I had to like plow a plow a big like you know uh clearing through my field so that i could get my bail out to 90 meters so i was like shooting down this like tunnel of snow and i would sit there i'd shoot out of my garage window down to my down to the bail at 90 meters so i trained at that and then you know one day i would shoot that and then the next day i would put some field faces out there so i could work on ranging and you know work on getting used to aiming at those yellow dots and then the next day I would switch back, you know, I, I was practicing exactly how I knew the format would be down there. And, uh, I remember that because you were, do you remember that? Do you remember? I was actually really shooting well when I went yeah. down there. I, yeah, I we, we, had, we had just, at the time we had just, I had just finished the Matthews apex member. Yeah. Um, um, those were those were just finally coming out to the real market for design. So I was able to actually have my apex um, kind of out in the open, and uh, I was shooting really well then. I remember. Yeah, I remember you shooting very well. I remember <laughs> you throwing down like a, a three fifty four at seventy meters and scaring the pants out of just about everyone there. I think if it wasn't for the um, the fact that you're running uh, so busy doing uh, seminars and um, you know uh, catching up with everybody, I think you would have hit fourteen hundred on the head yourself that that week. So. Oh yeah. Well, do, do you remember? You remember we practiced. We had our we had thirty six arrows of practice at ninety meters. Do you remember that ninety meter round? Because I do. That was like, yeah. I think I shot like a. I think my three fifty four was at ninety, dude. Because I remember you coming over to me after i shot and you said you better not break my 90 meter record in front yeah, of my in, <laughs> yeah, it, you did not, yeah. it was a 354 at 90 and i remember you saying do not break my record in front of my own country and i said <laughs> i said well sorry dude i'm just shooting but then then the wind picked up a little bit i remember we took that 15 minute break and then the wind picked up a little bit we were dealing with a pretty good crosswind so i think me um, I remember I shot a 1397 and I think, well, between me, you, Pat and Clifton, we all shot, a, you know, 1392 or better. And, yeah, and yeah. I mean, and we had a, we had a stiff wind, you know, that was, that was, uh, and, and you've always dealt with that down there. And so, and so has, you know, Chris White, when he shot his 1400, he was dealing with crazy wind and, you know, that's that's a big part of why I wanted to have you on was, you know, you and I have been friends a long time and and yeah. uh you know, there's not a there's not a lot of people in archery, I think, that 
that have information that I really want to hear. You know, that's a big part of why I did started doing this podcast was because, you know, one, I'm trying to trying to have to answer less questions on my messages all the time because those are out of control right now. I mean, God, I get like 200 a day, man. I can't. I need to clone myself just to answer questions. So that was a big part of this is I can refer people to these podcasts where, you know, where me and the people that I know, know their business can talk and, you know, forever. I mean, dude, even when I first met you, your aero, your aero flight has always been better than an arrow can fly. I mean, your arrow looks like, like someone... It looks like a cool tracer round coming out of a dang military sniper. I mean, you, you've, if your arrow has any wiggle, you cannot take it, can you? Nah, no, nah, I, <laughs> I, I really, it really bugs, it bugs me, to be honest. I, it's one thing I've always really tried. I, I believe if I can get good arrow flight, then the grouping is going to be the same all the time. I think if there's, if the arrow is starting to do this little shimmy or wiggle down to the target, then I think there's going to be these uh, inconsistencies with how the arrow is going to hit. So you're not going to be scoring the maximum that you're, the potential is there to do. So I always try and get the, the cleanest flight I possibly can. So. Yep, yep. And, and I will say I've had arrows that fly as good as yours but haven't grouped as good, and that's when I that's when I really started to figure out spine you know started to realize you know and obviously you know you figured that out too and 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 i'm going to get into that on a different podcast about actually you know kind of tuning how to spine tune arrows and stuff um but you know the one thing see i've shot bows i've shot bows where the grouping was awesome and even though i struggled to get that thing to shoot a perfect bullet hole i just said well the the hell with it because this thing's wadding arrows up and I'm kind of getting a little bit of a high tear or a little bit of a left tear and it cleaned itself up you know after 20 or 30 yards and I kind of just dealt with it but I know you're not like that and and the one thing I will say is when your arrow is coming out as clean as yours is that's telling you not only that you've got your rest set properly but it's also telling you that you're not having any interference either contact with your fletching, you know, your rest, or even um, a variance in your release or your hand position. That's, or, that's it. Even, even like face deflection, you know. Exactly, like exactly. Like Facial like tissue. So, well, I haven't, I've, it's been a long time since, I, you know, you and I have kind of talked about your process, but why don't you just, I'll just let you go for it and you tell me, uh, let's just start with Clint Freeman gets a bow and, you know, I guess we don't have to talk through all the details right now other than what you're look, what you're doing to get your arrow flight the way it is. Let's, let's talk through that. You just go ahead and I'll chime in if I hear something. If you say yeah. something that I don't like, I'm going to tell you. Otherwise I'm just going to drink my coffee here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So like basically I, I'll get the, um, uh, like I've just had the the new Hoyt PCE rock up two weeks ago, um, you know, a week and a half out of the Oz Oz Open champs. So 
first thing I like to do is 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 get the draw length spot on. Um, I'm very I'm, well, pretty anal basically with how my draw length is set. I can I can tell if it's out, you know, within like a sixteenth of an inch. Everything starts feeling wrong. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just. Let me just ask you real quick on that. Do you use a drawboard or do you have an arrow or what have you made so that you know exactly where it needs to be? Right, so I've got an arrow made up, which is uh, I have a, uh, a pen mark um, that when at full draw, the pen mark will run right through the center of the bolt hole of the riser. Yeah, which is so, for the most part on all companies is going to be level much, yeah. dead nuts with the, with the pivot with, point of the grip. That's right, yeah. So I'll uh, I'll make sure that is spot on, then I'll go ahead and uh, make sure for the wheel timing because if the wheel timing is out, you're going to get that inconsistency with um, how the shaft is um, hurtling towards the the target. So, but not only looking getting the wheel timing even, I'll actually put the bow on a on a drawboard and just making sure for when I'm pulling harder into the wheel that the knocking point isn't pulling high or pulling low. So this may mean I may have to rotate um, the top cam so it's hitting a fraction before the bottom. So yeah, yeah, and, and that's and that's pretty pretty important because if you if you're pulling hard into, especially in windy conditions, I like to pull a bit harder into the wall, um, and that um, just make sure that the arrow is going to have the same hit pattern for all conditions. Um, so from there, I will just do some testing with powder testing. I use um, a product called uh, Tinioderm Powder Spray, which comes out like a, a white foam onto the – a white powder onto the shaft. Mm-hmm. So I'll powder test for fletch contact. Um, and then I'll play around with uh, different angles of the arrowrest blade and just to get that – just to get that clearance. I remember there was a um, – I was still shooting pretty well, still shooting like 1400, 1410 sort of thing for the feet around. And, but I was only, you know, like averaging sort of the high, well, sort of the low 340s at, at 90 meters and sort of making up the rest of the points at the lower range targets. Right, yeah, yeah. I changed, I was, I noticed the aeroflight wasn't completely perfect. So I changed the blade angle just that. That fraction, and all of a sudden, bang! You know, I went from, you know, so like the three forty-two average up to where I, I think, within six or seven rounds, I didn't have a score under three forty-nine with a high score of, I think, a three fifty-two at ninety. That's when you set the record, then. Yeah. Oh no, that's actually this was after I set the record back in. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. In, yeah, but um, at at the time uh, these weren't registered shoots, so at the time I think the world record was at three fifty. Right. Yep. So, yeah. So I was shooting at or above what the world what the world record was at the time. So, but yeah. So like dealing with blade angle, and then that's about it. And then doing the uh, making sure that the center shot is is bang on as well. I mean that's that's pretty critical as well. Yep. Okay, well, I'm going to kind of jump in there a little bit because there's a couple, you know, we've kind of got, when we talk aeroflight, there's going to be, I think, three different elements that we need to dig into. Okay, the first is going to be, um, well, the three are going to be our knock and loop sets, 
they're going to be our fletching our fletching angle our fletching choice and then it's going to be our actual blade not only like where where we maybe start with our center shot but also like you said the angle and yeah. and the actual blade itself so why don't we just start off um let's start with the rest because honestly when you put your rest on the bow or when I put my rest on the bow you know you bolt it on and and you kind of get that stuff close before I do anyway before yeah. I tie on my knock and loop set so and one thing I wanted to backtrack too when you talked about getting your draw length set correctly and then setting your cams I actually do that different I set my cams first and then because you have to make those adjustments to your cables to get your cams right if I set my draw length first then I end up kind of I end up making my draw length shorter, you know, usually a little bit longer by the time I time I twist up to get my cams timed exactly how I want them. So I typically do that first, then I twist my string down to where I my draw length is like perfect. So yeah, I see. What, see what I normally do is I'll 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 max the bow out so it's at like uh, right on teetering right on sixty pound or maybe sixty point five, and I'll. I'll set the draw and cams time, but maybe the draw length just on the short side. So then if I have to, I'll just back the limbs out, which will give me that little bit of draw length increase as well and bring the weight down to, you know, a, a nice shootable weight anyway. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, once we put the, once we put, put a rest on, I'm shooting a trophy taker spring steel two just because it allows me to, and actually this is a rest you and I worked on together years yeah. ago. Yeah. Because obviously trophy takers always made a really simple and secure blade cool. rest, but you know, remember the first ones, you weren't able to adjust the blade angle. That's and, right. Well, and actually the angle on the one hole was good, but the angle on the two hole, which used, you know, kind of the best launcher which is what a lot of people prefer you know yeah. that angle was too steep and that you know and that's exactly what you're what you were seeing and and you get what i call spring back you know yeah. what i found is when the blade angle is too steep you're not actually able to fully use the flex the flexibleness of the blade so what happens is once you shoot through you know with a compound and a release the paradox of the arrow is vertical you know the the shaft bends up and as it does that and then it comes through you know the back of the arrow is riding that rest and normally what happens is when you first shoot and that arrow flexes up in the middle it kind of pushes down on the blade with the point of the arrow and that blade is so stiff that it really just springs back hard to that vertical position and then about the exact time that thing's springing back is right when your fletchings are trying to clear through it, and then it ends up kicking the back of your arrow up. Yeah, that's so, right. So a lot of guys, and this is a question I get asked a lot is, you know, hey, no matter what I'm doing, I keep getting a high tear. A lot of times you can get rid of a high tear on a bow by not just, you know, you have to lower the blade angle. If you keep the blade angle too stiff... Or, or if just the tension on your rest is too stiff, you get those high tears. Even if, and what what you'll find is if that's actually the problem, regardless of where you move your knock point, you keep getting that same tear. Yeah. 
That's right. And it and it's either going to be it's either going to be that spring back, which I just talked about, or it's going to be the fact that you're too weak. Yeah. If your arrow spine's too weak, you know, any for all you guys out there, anytime you're adjusting your arrow rest, if you make adjustments to your arrow rest, but your tear in your paper does not change with it, then that's an immediate indication that either your arrow, you know, if your tears are always high or always low, if it's high, it's going to be a weak spine. If it's always tearing low, there's a good chance that your spine is just stiff. Um, but if you're like getting high tears and you even try a different arrow and you're moving your rest up or down or left or right and those tears aren't changing, then it's definitely going to be a clearance issue. You're somewhere you're hitting or you've got a crazy amount of torque in your grip. So those are some things to think about. But I like to set my blade angle, I think, at around 34 to 36 degrees. Yeah, that, that's, that sounds about right. Yeah. Yep. So I lay that sucker down to where it's about 36 degrees, you know, let's just say 35. Um, for the most part, you know, if I'm shooting my indoor arrows, I'll shoot a 10 thousandths wide best launcher. And that works fine for for really any arrow I've got. Um, if I'm shooting outdoors, I'll for me I'll normally shoot a, a ten thousandths as as well. Um, but also, one thing that I experimented with, and well, I think I was shooting a ten thousandths when I came down there with you. But you know, when we shot the World Games. I had a bow that was shooting really good then. Um, yeah. You know, if I, well, I think you were on that target when I freaking hit my release letting down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sucked. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, um, and I'm sure you've experimented with this, but I've really found, you know, the, the lighter your blade, the more that thing is going to absorb, you know, if your knock isn't indexed perfectly and you have a little contact or say you apply a little bit of facial pressure, or if you twist your hand slightly and that arrow just comes off that blade or rides that blade slightly different, the, the weaker it is, the more it's going to give. Yeah. So so I've had a lot of good luck with taking a 10 thousandths blade cutting it in half and then laying it underneath an eight thousandths blade. Yeah. Have you, you do that as, have you done that? I'm sure. No, I haven't done that. I've I've actually uh, heard, um, heard of a couple of others doing the same thing, but uh, yeah, at this stage I'm sort of, because of my own arrow length um, and arrow weight, I'm sort of floating between that, um, you know, the eight thou and the, and the 10 thou. So Yeah. It's something to consider, you know. I I personally, because the problem with an eight thousandths blade, and I've had, to be honest, I can set mine up with an eight thousandths blade and just change my blade angle a little, maybe more to about thirty seven degrees, because it's going to have a little bit of sag. Yep. But you, but I can get some awesome arrow flight with a slightly weaker blade. But you know, as you know, they just, you know, if you put your finger, if you push your finger down on that thing, it's bent. You know, yes. they're hard to travel with, you know, you have them in your case and very I mean, much. Yeah. That's, that's the main reason why I shoot the 10. It's just, uh, it's just it, better it, to travel with. It's got it, more it, longevity if it gets a little rust on it, but you should try that Clint, take a 10 thousandths and cut it and lay it underneath that sucker. 
you know, yeah, lay it lay it underneath there to where it when when you kind of push down when you push down on your eight thousandths, like if you hold the very end of it where the bolts are and you push down, you'll see where that thing arcs where it naturally bends. Cut yep. cut the ten thousandths to lay right about at that position. So then that allows the top part of the eight to still bend, but you know obviously you're not going to break it off. It's tr- it's twice as stable yeah. when it comes to travel, you know. So, um, but yeah, I mean once once I select my blade and then put my blade at the right angle, um, from there, I go ahead before I've ever tied my knocking points on. I go ahead and I move my arrow rest down to where when I clip my arrow on the string and I put my arrow at 90 degrees I like the bottom of my arrow shaft along the bottom edge of that burger buttonhole yeah you agree yeah I love actually um I tend to run as low as possible so I get the arrow uh close to that um you know the pivot point of the riser so at, at the moment with the PCE I'm I'm running the center of the shaft through this bottom of the bolt hole. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so I've got that. Um, yeah, so I've got that set up that way, and I just lock that, lock the knocking point and the and the loop in, and just don't touch it. Yeah, yeah, and so, you know, I prefer mine right along the bottom edge. Is kind of you know, and and the thing is, you can, for those of you out there. Um, you know, if you really want to change how your bow holds, then changing your pulling position on the string. So ultimately, you know, if you if you want to do some experimenting, set your bow up to where your arrow is at the top of that burger buttonhole, and then it's even all the way as low as what Clint's talking. You know, that it, it's only a quarter inch on your string, but pulling from those different positions that it'll actually change how your bow holds, you know, and if it wants to kind of dance up and down, it, it makes a big difference. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's um, I did a lot of work with that um, especially about five or six years ago, just trying to find the ultimate drawing point for each, for each bow, and I found that there was, with different limb strengths, there was a different position on the string where the bow would hold steadier. So you're putting by drawing slightly higher or slightly lower, you're putting a, a different pressure through a different position of, on your hand. And I was just getting better aiming. So yep, yep. So, and this is something I learned years ago. And actually, I learned it. I learned that right before I came down to Australia. The reason I know that was because, um, you know, we as pro archers, we you always want to have bows that are identical. I mean, everyone tries to build a number one, and then ultimately you want to have two number ones. I mean, that's what you want. It's what you. That's what you want. I want. I want. I want five number ones. Yeah. <laughs> but but the thing is. The, for a lot of archers, the likelihood of that happening is dang near pure luck. Um, yeah. And and I made it a mission one year to do that. And you know, and at the time I was working in the factory, so I remember I had three blocks of aluminum. I cut all three of my bows out of the same CNC machine. Then I went over 
I, I made sure all six of my limbs came out of the same plates of glass. They all went through the sander at the same time. I'm talking all three risers um, got anodized at the same time. They stayed together. I mean, well, actually, I still have one of those bows left. Two of them I've given out, but I have one left. And, you know, and it the serial number is dud, one, two, three, you know. Yeah. And I built three bows. I'm I'm talking same aluminum, same plates of glass, same machines, same poly, same batch of anodizing. I built those, built all the strings at the exact same time out of the same spool of material. And when I set those bows up, all three felt different. And 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 then I I guess I missed an important part. I built them all and freaking checked every one of them on an Instron machine. I'm talking a $300,000 draw force cycle machine that tested that bow to the exact, exact draw length. Every one of them was exact on poundage. I set them up, put a rest on them in a loop. Every one of them acted a little bit different. And it was then when I was like, what the heck is this? There's no way these things are literally triplets, a hundred percent. Why are they not? At? So then I just started micro measuring everything, and it was then that I found out that. And what I was doing at the time was I used to put my peep in the string, like kind of about where I knew it needed to go, and I would slide my peep up or down to where my peep would be pointing perfectly back towards me. Yeah, And then I would measure from my peep down to clip my arrow on and tie my arrow on. So out of all three of those bows, it was, there was like an eighth or quarter inch variance in where I was actually pulling from on the right, on the string. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well there, that must be it. And I, I ended up taking them, you know, t- taking my knocks and loops off. I measured every one of them. You know, I laid an arrow on the top of the riser shelf. I came back to the string. I measured up exact and then tied my top knock in the exact position on all three bows. And then put my peep in the string and just had to put a few twists in the string to where all my peeps were fine. And bam, now I got triplets. Yeah. So it makes a big, big, big difference. If you if you want to have if you want to have triplets or twins or quadruplets or octuplets, <laughs> that's what you got to do. I mean, that's what you have to do. So, okay, well, I start out, um, I always start my arrow rest out for the most part. Uh, I like to measure from the inside of my riser to the center of my shaft. And now I can just eyeball it. On the Hoyts, they run down the pipe. I mean, that's yeah. the one thing. That's the one. A lot of people ask me, you know, obviously a lot of what I've been talking about is when I shot when I shot Matthews. I mean, when I went out there with you, you know, I was shooting Matthews at the time and and like I said, that's uh, I shot amazing those 5 days. And um but in saying that, you know, obviously I've been with Hoyt, you know, I think almost 8 years now or something. And um everyone asks me what the difference is and honestly you know there's great things about a lot of bows on the market right now but for me 
I can tell you that when I set up my Hoyts, my freaking center shot runs down the center of that bow. It runs, you know, I can look over the top of my bow and my arrow shaft runs through the center of my tiller bolts, center of my stabilizer. I mean, the line is perfect. perfect. Yeah. And when you draw your bow back, that stabilizer stays right down the pipe. Yeah. You know, you look at some of the bows on the market, when you pull them back, that stabilizer swings out to the right. And that's just showing you that that riser is flexing like a wet taco shell. Yeah. You know what I mean? I like it. It it allows you to uh, to have to make mistakes in your front hand position. It's not to say, you know, you can shoot a riser that's weaker, but your front hand position has to absolutely has to be the same all the time. And then it'll shoot just like a robot shooting it. But with the Hoyts, because of and I think several of the companies now have a shoot-through riser. That makes a big difference. If you're a target archer, shoot-through risers stiffen the riser design dramatically. Um, but yeah, that that particular, uh, you know, I can look over the center of these particular bows that we're talking about, and I normally just line everything right down the pipe. It's normally about 13 sixteenths of an inch from the center of the center of the riser to the center of the arrow shaft isn't it yeah yeah i'm, I'm running mine around about i think well i'm because we're in australia i'm talking mil um run about 21 and a half mil i think from the riser so okay which was which is pretty uh pretty common i think out of everyone that i spoke to regards to setting the pc up they're, they're either a 21 or 22 mil so i'm pretty much right there in the middle so yeah yep well, okay, so if we've got our arrow rest set there, then the next thing I do is I just I put my arrow on the string and I set my arrow to 90 degrees to start. Yeah. You same with you? Yeah, same with me. Yeah. And uh and then I guess I know right now this is where the two of us are going to have two different ways. So I'll <laughs> just I'll just let you tell everybody about the Clint Loopy because I know you're already going there. I haven't even asked you, but I know you're going to go there, so you might as well go on. Uh, you know what? The, 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 Clint's, uh, the Clint's Loopy is um, like a single-point drawing loop, um, which I attach under the knock. Um, but to be honest, I haven't been shooting this loop now for maybe five or six years. On, oh. Yeah, and the, the only reason which why I'm, I haven't been is because – because the drawing point is lower yep. under the knock rather than directly behind the knock, the peep side is also lower, and I really struggle with my draw length to achieve 90 meters with the loopy. So, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I was the same. I struggled to get it too because my arrows have, you know, with my draw length being so long, my arrows are long and they were always super heavy. Yeah. I, tr I tried the Clint Sloopy. Another thing too, Clint, is, you know, you did that years ago for another important reason. And that was years ago, the actual knock travel and the on the cams were a lot different than they are now. Oh, so, yeah, so you shot that system because by pulling under the arrow, you caused the arrow to put more downward pressure onto the arrow rest which yeah. at the time really helped grouping out of some of the very first cam and a half systems 
That's right. Yeah. Which now, um, now the cams are actually designed to where, and I know Hoyt does this for a specific reason. The knock travel slowly rises as you draw. Um, and that's for the reason of, you know, and actually what's funny about this is years ago, you know, Matthews went through a spell where they really pushed hard zero knock travel and advertised that. Yeah. And, but what's funny is the shooters did not do as well with some bows. They preferred the older bows and still to this day, they're still shooting C4s. Well, crap, you know. Yeah. I've got, the, I've got C4s hanging here that I shot. I don't even know. That thing's got to be 15 years old. And obviously people are still shooting it because they like how it tunes. And that was a cam that, although we didn't ever say it, that cam was like one of the bows in the line that did not have a zero knock travel. As you drew that back, it rose. And yeah. and Hoyt, the engineers at Hoyt, you know, that's that's another thing that I like about working with those guys is all of them in that in the engineering department, they're all shooters. They're all, you know, they're all target guys. They're hunters too, but they're target guys. So they they like they do the same stuff we do on their own gear. So when things aren't working, they're like, well, "What the hell? We need to design that a little different." So now all the cam and a halfs are designed so that as you draw back, there's a slow rise in that uh, knock travel, and that way, as you shoot, it continually forces the arrow to utilize the arrow rest and give itself direction as it leaves the bow. And that's pretty yep. critical. So now you can shoot with you know more like what I what I shoot, and that's having two tied knocks. Um, my tide knock on the bot below the arrow is about a mil bigger than the one that I have on the top. Yeah, same. Um, you know, I run about a two mil um, knocking point on the top, and then about a three on the bottom. Yeah, that same as you. Yeah, exactly the same. Yeah, and then um, and then for loop material, uh, what loop material are you using? Um, I'm I'm using the. Uh, BCY um, 24, I think it is. So you're using the poly? Yeah, it's just super strong. Okay. Yeah, it is. Depending on the release you're shooting too, you know, some people like a slightly thicker, stiffer loop. Um, I actually like the knots I get a lot better with the D-braid. And uh, so I use the D-braid because it's it's a softer material. And when I, when I shoot a hinge... Um, if I do shoot a hinge, I change around a lot, but when I shoot a hinge, it really works itself to the end of the hook a lot better than a, you know, a lot of times that poly rope, you can kind of feel it hop. Yeah. So the D braid is, is softer and it'll allow that to slide without feeling the hop. What's funny about the D braid is, um, so, and actually the poly braid the poly braid is something that years ago um, got developed. I was at the time I was really I was always rooming with these guys and and I I helped I helped a lot with this. But the very first poly braid was actually came from the uh, Randy Chapel. He was a 3D guy and Randy was um, he started developing different loop materials because at the time he had switched to to a true ball which was the original chappy boss 
And on the very first ones, there was a gap in the jaw and people would pull the old style loop material, the old specter stuff, it would pull through. And so as you started to pull, you would pull that because that stuff would flatten. So he's like, we got to do something different. So we actually went to a rope maker right there in uh, Roanoke, Virginia, and he found a guy and the guy said, well, maybe if you used a polyester core, he said the poly will actually bunch up when you put pressure on it, it'll bunch up. So it'll actually get thicker. So we switched to that poly core and then he ended up taking the, taking that to, to BCY and to true ball. And, uh, and then bam, there's poly, poly loop material. That's how it started because the very first true balls we had, it, it pulled through. Um, but then once I started shooting my hooks, you know, I wanted a softer material. Cause like I said, the, that bigger poly would hop. So, um, I went to BCY and worked with them on making a new material. And so when it first came out, they were sending it to me and they just called it Dudley braid, Dudley braid. Well, then when some of the 3D shooters first switched over to like the Scott Longhorns, you know, when the very first Scott hinge releases came out, yeah, he gave it to a few of the shooters and uh, he's, you know, they were saying, well, we don't like the stuff because it hops, you know, what can we have? And he's like, well, I'm making this special stuff for, for Dudley and, and it's, it totally cures that. So he said, I'll send you some. So he sent it and they started shooting it, but then you know, they said, you know, I don't, I don't want to shoot something that's called Dudley braid. (laughs) Yeah. All my, all my bitter enemies out there on the 3d range. So, so then they just said, okay. So they just started calling it D braid. So, you know, as much as I've had people ask me, I remember Jerry Carter. Remember when I used to shoot those, I shot the two hole, the two finger, I shot the two finger releases a lot. Yeah, and Jerry had made me some custom two holes, and he was gonna start making them, and he and uh, so he kind of s- sent them, and the first ones were called the duds, and I'm like, you know, Jerry, from a marketing point of view, no one's gonna buy something if it's a dud. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've got a terrible name to market. I mean, <laughs> um, but yeah, so from a loop material point of view. I prefer the D braid from BCY. A lot of guys also prefer the poly. The poly burn, burns a nice knot. The D braid burns a nice knot. The D braid is a little bit smaller, so you can actually get your knots very, very close to your tied knocking points. Uh, and then from there, I always use like a set of needle nose pliers and freaking set my loop to the exact length by cranking on them. You, yeah. you do the same. Yeah, I, yeah, I pull right into it. So I've got a, um, I actually set up one of my back tension releases where I just really reef on the thing just to get it to the exact <laughs> position, <laughs> exact position I wanted in. So yeah, yeah. Well, so when you do yours, um, sorry, I didn't have my phone on buzz. So um, you know, when when you do yours do you cut your loop material to the length you want and then do it or do you i start out with like a one foot piece of loop material and i actually kind of get my first one tied and then i grab the ends of both tabs with my needle nose and i just reef on those suckers and then i burn down that first one and then i pull the other one over 
and kind of really focus on using that long tail of the release rope to where I can really get it as tight as I can so that when I do put my needle nose in there and spread it, it just cinches it right in without, you know, I don't want my loop to grow a quarter inch because I got a bunch of play in there. I've never been a fan of pre-cutting the length of my loop material. I like to start out a little long so I've got something to work with. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same. Like I'll, I will, I'll cut mine. You know, a good, uh, I suppose, half inch, inch longer mm-hmm. than what I'm used to, and just set the first, set the first knot, and get the second one adjusted, and just slowly, um, yeah, pull it through whichever way till till I get the desired length, and then uh, burn it, burn it right off, and pat it down. Yep. Okay. Well. So if we've got that, we've got our arrow rest set at 35 degrees. We've got, what was it, 21 and a half mil um, center shot. We've got our knocking points at 90 degrees. Um, Then from there, you know, obviously we shoot it through paper. You want to get a good tear. Um, Typically you move the arrow rest opposite of your tear. So if you're tearing, if the point of your arrow is going in the paper and then the the veins of your arrows are tearing to the left, then you want to move your rest to the right. You always move your rest opposite of the yeah. tear. Um, uh, and then I guess, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of 44 minutes in already. So now that we've kind of got to this point, I think what I'm going to do just for the fact of keeping our, our podcast within time, let's, uh, Let's go ahead and wrap this one up and stay with me, Clint. We'll go ahead and make this a two-part series because next we might as well talk about what we do on the range to really seek out that Aeroflight. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to another Knock On podcast. Make sure you tune in for part two with the Grandmaster Ninja of Aeroflight, Clint Freeman, the Tasmanian Devil, the Australian powerhouse spider monkey. So (laughs) thanks, everybody, for listening. Make sure you tune in to part two. Stay stay tuned. (laughs) All right. Hold on, buddy. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com.